so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Levecki, executive editor of Providence and author of a new book, The Good Kill, Just War and Moral Injury, and we talk about the morality of warfare. Mark Levecki serves as a just war and global statescraft scholar at the Institute of Religion and Democracy, alongside his duties at Providence. He also serves as the McDonald Visiting Scholar at McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life at Christ Church College, and as a Leadership Research Fellow at the United States Naval Academy. His first book, The Good Kill, Just War, and Moral Injury, was first published in summer of 2021 from Oxford University Press. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Lebecki, thank you so much for joining me today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you give us a little background on the origins of this book and what pushed you to address this topic specifically? Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. I appreciate the work you've done in the past and happy to contribute to it. But in terms of background, you know, full disclosure, it's a it's a dissertation turned into a book, right? Hopefully it doesn't read like that. But back in the day, you know, I took quite seriously the idea that one ought not to do a PhD unless one has a really burning question that they want to have answered and incidentally actually need the professional card. But the burning question that I had had to do with Christian love and frankly, whether or not love is compatible with killing somebody, right? So can you love your enemy to death was sort of the guiding question. And the background of that question goes really all the way back to uh, my early conversion which occurred while I was living in Bratislava, Slovakia. The, the, the early work had been done while I was in college, but then I sort of tried to flee the whole thing by going overseas. I hadn't read the book of Jonah yet. I didn't know you could get away from God by, you couldn't get away from God by going overseas. Uh, I tried. Uh, a lot of that early work that had been done that led to my conversion was sort of an informal undergraduate study of the Holocaust. And being confronted with the problem of evil, hating evil, hating what it had done, to innocent people and not having sort of the philosophical grounding to substantiate my hate, being challenged uh, by a thoughtful Christian 
that as an atheist or as an agnostic, whatever sexy thing it is that I thought I was, being that didn't give me the grounds to truly hate evil. It was just an opinion. And the Nazis had their opinion. And it was just a clash of opinions. And I, I didn't want it to be that. And so sort of to riff off of Oz Guinness, who said that God damn it, in the face of evil is very often the first prayer of an atheist. I wanted my sort of fist shaking anger at Auschwitz to say something about Auschwitz and not just about myself. I want to be saying something objective, not merely subjective. Uh, so that, that started me off on sort of the Christian conversion. I go overseas. I wanted to go to a place where the Holocaust had happened so I could continue studying it. I converted fairly quickly after getting to Slovakia. And one of the things I started doing was taking friends up through Auschwitz-Birkenau to talk to them about the history of the Holocaust. Uh, and I started doing this first informally and then formally with uh, sort of a Labrie-style organization that I ended up working with. One of the things I discovered early was that a lot of Christians had questions about what Christians can do about something like the Holocaust, because after all, we're supposed to be pacifists. And as a new Christian, this was almost as sort of shocking as, uh, you know, the, the early suspicion that I might not be able to have a beer anymore that I became a Christian. And so just like uh, I had to reconcile that, I started a study of whether or not I was actually supposed to be a Christian or a pacifist. And pacifism doesn't run in my blood. I have Sicilian Irish background and I'm sort of naturally truculent. And so the, the question became, what do Christians do about something like the Holocaust? And I wanted it to be something meaningful. And prayer is good, but I recognize that in the realities of the world, prayer doesn't always manifest exactly how we would like it to. And that a part of being made in the image of God means to exercise dominion and all of these questions about political responsibility, which led to the question of, you know, how does killing an enemy reconcile with Christian love? And then on top of that, I was looking for a framework uh, through which to think about that. And early on, I ran into uh, the idea of moral injury which I had originally come to through a Christian psychologist named Warren Kinghorn, who I think works at Duke. And moral injury is doing or allowing to be done something that goes against a deeply held moral belief. And for a lot of people raised in the church, the belief is that killing is wrong, period. But that in war, it is necessary. And so this creates kind of a, a cognitive dissidence uh, that in many cases can issue in a moral injury. And this was a problem because moral injury is the number one predictor uh, for combat veteran suicide. And so all of a sudden I had a framework that made this not just a theoretical question, but a deeply practical one. And I was doing a degree in ethics and it seemed to me that ethics ought to be done at that place where life is lived. It has to matter to those with their boots on the ground. So that's the background, I think, to the dissertation and to the book. Yeah, see, that's where I find really interesting. I love hearing the background often of why authors write the books they do, because I think the question that you face as a new convert um, is kind of a larger question that we face in terms of the viability of a secular ethic. And so here on the Digital Public Square, we're talking about what does it look like to have a Christian ethic in the public square, playing that out through issues of war or issues of public theology or politics, et cetera. One of the things that I really love about your book is you said is you focus it on this idea of moral injury. And so I've read and we've had a number of folks here on the podcast talking about just war theory and especially my kind of interest in technology of war and how that shifts kind of maybe shift the calculus often in terms of the ethics of war. But one of the things that I haven't seen a lot about and one of the reasons I was so interested to pick up your book 
is that you do focus on this idea of moral injuries, especially the psychic trauma and the effects that war has on soldiers. So can you tell us a little bit more about these psychic traumas and the effects that they can have on one's soul? I think we're vaguely familiar with some of these things, especially with you know, a 20-year war ending in Afghanistan. Many people know soldiers who have served overseas and the trauma that they still face today. But what kind of issues have you seen in your research and relationships with soldiers in terms of the moral injury? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, as I had suggested earlier, one of the definitions of a moral injury is doing or allowing to be done something that goes against a deeply held moral belief. And so you have, I think, baked into American society, sort of a knee-jerk assumption that violence is wrong, that killing is wrong. And at at one level, I recognize that that sounds like nonsense. Uh, you know, America is a, in some ways a very violent country. Um, we like violent television. We like violent movies. But even if you look at some of those violent movies, you look at the classic American film, the Western, the Western is all about a society that is in turmoil. And the people that are suffering this turmoil can't help themselves. And into this situation rides the gunslinger. And the gunslinger brings violence in order to either chase out the evildoers or at least to bring about the conditions necessary for society to flourish. But then at the end of the film, having done his dirty deeds, the townspeople, more often than not, watch him go off into the sunset. And I don't think it's necessarily because he's got more work to do. It's because they know and he knows he no longer belongs in civilized society. And so we have this idea that the men of violence is somehow doing dirty work that otherwise good people ought not to do. Uh, but he does it because it's necessary. And so you'll see this in, in some of my early work. Uh, there was a uh, formerly commissioned Marine named Timothy Kudo who put out a series of op-eds in, I think, the New York Times. And in there, he, he discusses his combat experiences, you know, in the war on terror. Uh, and he describes a horrific event in which they accidentally killed a pair of innocent bystanders who were moving toward them on a motorcycle and wouldn't stop. And it's sort of the classic scenario in which innocent people, you know, are fired upon, rightly fired upon, given the rules of engagement and the threats to the force and all of that only to discover that they're non-combatants. And, you know, now that he's safely back home, he talks about that experience and he says he thinks about those, you know, those two every day. Uh, but he says it's not only those two that he thinks about, he thinks about all of the people that he killed. And he funnels it all through this assumption uh, that killing is wrong, but in war it is necessary. And he says part of the horror is that as I was training to be a Marine, I knew that I would go downrange and, and kill. And the closer I got to deployment, the more refined my ability to kill became. He said, "I, you know, I learned to do it with a with a gun, with a, you know, grenades, with a rock, whatever." He said, "But while my ability to kill was refined, my reflection about killing was never refined. It was never touched." So he gets downrange, and they don't have a second to think about killing. They just have to get into the business of doing it. And now that he's returned, he reflects back and he says, how could something that is morally wrong be necessary? He said, I still have to reconcile that. I can't reconcile that. He says, but the one thing I know is that in order to wage war successfully, you have to recalibrate your moral compass. Uh, and so they have made the very business of war fighting 
morally injurious because they recognize that the business of war is doing something that ought never to be done, but you have to do it for the sake of whatever it happens to be, a lesser evil or a greatest possible good, whatever it is, nevertheless, it goes against a deeply held moral belief. And then, so if you pick up combat memoirs and you, you read combat memoirs with this phrase in mind that killing is wrong, but in war it is necessary, I was shocked to discover how often that phrase or something like it appears in combat memoirs where people don't necessarily regret their combat experiences or their service, but they deeply believe that what they've done is immoral and that they will have to answer to God for it. And it draws into doubt their place in the universe, whether or not they could ever be considered good people again, they're fit for civilized society, um, their right to ever you know, love a spouse or a child again. Uh, and that kind of cognitive dissidence uh, is so disequilibrating uh, that it, it very often manifests in, in suicidal ideation. If not suicide, then heavy drinking and, you know, other sorts of self-destruction. Yeah, that's one thing that I really appreciate about your book is that you take a very pastoral tone, even as you're describing those stories and talking about kind of the moral and ethical quandary and ethical situation that we find ourselves in, in the nature of war, you do so with a very pastoral tone, a very calm tone, a very caring tone. And this was something that really stood out to me because as I was doing research for my first book, The Age of AI, I wrote a chapter on AI and warfare. And as I was reflecting on war, a story of my grandfather came back to my mind. He served in World War II. Uh, he died a few years ago at the age of 96. And he never, I remember we had his medals hanging on the wall I was very interested coming from like an ROTC background, very interested in my grandfather's service, um, wanting to hear a lot of these stories. But I noticed that he never, there were certain stories and kind of details that he always left out um, and that he never really gave a lot of detail. And part of this is because my grandmother is at home. Um, they're married at this point. They have a daughter. He's overseas. He's, you know, across the world fighting a war and she's not sure he's ever going to come back. Um, but there's a story of him. They called him the stubborn rail splitter in the newspaper um, because he was part of uh, this infantry unit. And he ended up earning a bronze star for valor because of uh, his our heroic act that he performed of taking out a, a German squad uh, that was charging his company. And all that to be said is that I just noticed he never shared a lot of the details of exactly what happened. I found out most of the details reading the newspaper story. Um, because he would never voluntarily tell those. And it, to me, as I was reading your book, it really stood out to me because I think that in many ways he was facing some of those things. He didn't want to maybe own up to it. He felt guilty because he knew this was the right thing to do, but it also was he was killing other people. And so there was this kind of turmoil. And I noticed that he just never really talked about it too much, um, especially the turmoil and that he faced. And so I just want to kind of dive in a little bit on moral injuries and specifically with just war theory, because I know we've talked a lot about just war theory here on the podcast, but can you help ex ex understand how just war theory can help prevent or even help soldiers recover some, from some of these moral injuries of war? Yeah, sure. And and here there, I occasionally feel like I'm on shaky ground because what I don't want to sound like I'm suggesting is that, hey, guess what? All you got to do is read a book. And I'm going to transfer some information to you, and you're going to be locked and loaded and ready to go. And you're going to be ready to, to venture forth and, and you know, kill without moral injury. This is, a, you know, as you said, it's a, it's a 
pastoral endeavor, right? Which I take to mean it's, it is going to take, in some cases, a long time, I think, for some of the, the things that I write about to sink in, in part because I think there's a lot of unlearning we have to do. Um, you know, I, everything from as basic as, you know, understanding that the Ten Commandments don't include a prohibition against killing, it includes a prohibition against murder, and that's different, and that that distinction can be grounded in scripture and argued through in scripture, but there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. And the just word tradition itself, you know, has different uh, streams of thought. I think the more secular grounding of just war maybe has nothing to say in some instances to moral injury because it's it attempts at times to sort of uproot or deracinate just war from its theological grounding. I think to just war's detriment. But the classical understanding of just war that you know that comes to us, you know, from a classical, you know, a, a Greco-Roman uh, philosophical background, but more explicitly up through Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and the Christian patrimony, uh, grounds war in love. Uh, you look at Thomas Aquinas, his handling of war comes at that part of the Summa Theologica where he's talking about love. And frankly, I think St. Paul does the same thing. When you read Romans, he's talking about love. In Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy, he describes what that looks like. And then he goes into a description in chapter 13 about government. But then he picks up this theme of love again. And so you got government sandwiched within Paul's dissertation on love, just like you've, you've got it in, in Thomas. And I think that's not by accident. Um, I think the recognition there is that war and proper government uh, is a manifestation of Christian love. And in the case of war, a manifestation of Christian love in the last resort, when nothing else will sufficiently protect the innocent or take back what's been wrongly taken uh, or punish evil. And that sometimes love has to, to do things that are harsh and that there's a, a retributive quality to justice that can't be denied. And so if you ground just war in love like this, then what I think one of the outcomes of that is that it grounds a soldier's work in something far more positive than, you know, simply national interest. And, you know, I don't short shift national interest, but it's a moral endeavor. It could be a moral vocation. You know, I know a, a chaplain, a military chaplain, who calls his role, you know, a um, paradox because he, he describes what a lot of chaplains describe as the two collars problem. On one collar, they have their military rank. On the other collar, they have a cross if, if they're a Christian chaplain. Um, and I, I don't see that as a paradox. Uh, but we continually use this language that Christians in the military or military chaplains is something of, uh, you know, there's something bizarrely juxtaposed to there. And, you know, if I wrote sci-fi... Uh, I would, you know, someday write a novel about a future society in which it's really only Christians or those within the Hebrew tradition uh, that serve in the military, because ultimately, you know, only they believe that it can be something that's grounded in a morality uh, worth living and dying for. Um, so I think the just war tradition properly taught, to answer your question more succinctly, gives soldiers the confidence that what they do um, is not a matter of lesser evils, but it's an expression of love in the last resort love both for the victims uh, and frankly for the enemy because you're you're helping people resist doing wrong. Yeah, I know often when we talk about just war theory 
there's often kind of a natural law underpinning that you hear about in terms of it doesn't matter where we go in or around the world to various cultures and societies. There's a, basically a universal prohibition against killing. We know that this is morally wrong. So can you expand on why, like, why do you think that is? Obviously, there's a natural law underpinning to it. But like, why do you think that that is kind of a shared assumption? But there's also a shared assumption that sometimes we must go to war. Because you see this no matter where you are across the world is that war happens, whether it's intercountry, it's various groups against one another. We see these things take place. Why do you think that is uh, from a even from a non-Christian perspective? Why do you think that there's that kind of prohibition or immorality of killing at the same time that there's also a, a, a pursuit of justice? In part because I, I push back against the assertion that there is a natural prohibition against killing, right? So I think you're right. I think it's grounded in natural law. There are certain things we can't not know. Natural law is, is you know, notoriously vague. You have impressions, you have impulses. And one of the impulses might lead one to believe that killing is wrong because, you know, the act of homicide seems to go against so many things that seem natural to being human. But that immediately, in certain cases, comes up against what seems to be an equally strong impulse to protect the innocent. And so all of a sudden, you've got these two impulses that seem in contradiction. And so I think, you know, part of the beauty of the Hebraic tradition is it recognizes that these things don't stand in stark contrast, but that one of the impulses needs to be modified. And the modification of the impulse against killing is to recognize, well, wait a minute, if I've got an equally strong impulse to protect the innocent, then maybe killing isn't the problem per se, or maybe violence isn't the problem per se, but unjust killing or injustices, right? And so you you end up with this distinction that, look, killing comes in different kinds. One of those kinds of killing uh, with homicide is, is murder, and you never do it, period. That's the end of that conversation. Um, I believe there are no circumstances which a Christian should commit murder, which is you know, the intentional murder of the innocent. Uh, and that gets complicated in certain just war conversations. But another kind of killing is relatively morally neutral. It's killing by accident. And there's maybe varying degrees of culpability there. You should have known better. You should have been more careful. But it's essentially morally neutral. There's another kind of killing that comes on the heels of a, a desire to protect the innocent that seems to be morally permitted. And even, I would argue, in, in certain circumstances, morally obligatory. And so with different kinds of killing, all of a sudden you, you begin to recognize that killing per se isn't the crisis, but the unjust killing is. And so I think, I think you can ground it in natural law, uh, but you need to do work with natural law. You, you, you need to apply it to specific circumstances and figure out and refine what that impulse really is. Yeah, that's the one thing that I've noticed in studies of natural law is that natural law is helpful and it helps us to flesh out certain aspects but we need special revelation. We need biblical revelation to fill that out, to uh, make things clearer that are fairly vague within the natural law tradition. And so that's where for someone who was raised kind of anti-natural law in some sense as a Protestant, I see the benefits of it. Um, I see the use of it and the purpose of why we should study it more deeply. But again, it's one of those, it's not a and or relationship as much as it is and. We must had not only have the natural law tradition, but we need the biblical revelation to fill out those details. I know in the book, uh, you interact a good bit with Reinhold Niebuhr 
and his view of Christian realism, especially in light of a lot of the controversies of his day surrounding pacifists that you mentioned earlier. Can you help us to understand a little bit more of Niebuhr's thoughts on just war, as well as some of the assumptions about war that you argue uh, that he actually shared with Christian pacifists? Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big question because, uh, in part, you know, depending on who you ask, people will so, some Christian scholars will say the relationship between just war and Reinhold Niebuhr uh, is null. He he was not a just war theologian or just war thinker. I probably ultimately come down on that side and and say that he wasn't, but he fits the bill well enough that he's rightly included in the conversations. But my argument in the book is. Is, is one of the more challenged arguments that I make in the book is that Reinhold Niebuhr is a pacifist and, and more than just the average pacifist, he doesn't think nonviolence is the problem or that violence is the problem, that nonviolence is the mandate. He thinks non-resistance is the mandate. Reinhold Niebuhr will say, look, if you look at the ethic of Jesus, um, you don't find nonviolence, you find non-resistance, full stop. You know, and I don't know what he would include in non-resistance. Can I pray against evil, for instance? I assume I can. But in terms of human action, it really comes down for him to non-resistance. You do not resist an evildoer. And that he might call the ethic of love or the ethic of Jesus. But against this, there's another ethic for Reinhold Niebuhr that he says is incontrovertible. And that's an ethic of responsibility. And, you know, human beings made in the image of God, have to be responsible to one another. And so in the build-up to World War I as a pacifist, you know, he thinks we, we, we shouldn't get into the fight, but then he sees the behavior of Germany, and being a German, he's particularly bothered by this, uh, German-American. Uh, and so he switches over and begins to advocate for entry into World War I. World War I ends, and he says to a friend, ah, I'm done with the war business. There's a build-up to World War II, and again, he starts to get his dander up, and he realizes we've got to do something about this. And so he had a cyclical relationship where he was always coming back to passivism. And I guess World War II probably cured him in one sense of passivism, maybe permanently. But he still, to his dying day, would argue that non-resistance is the ethic of love. It is the ethic that is most compatible with what Jesus taught us. But in this world, we cannot meet both the ethic of love and the ethic of responsibility. We can't do both at the same time. History doesn't allow it. And if we only aim at love, then we're going to get neither love nor very much responsibility. But if we aim at responsibility, we can get a good deal of responsibility covered and we can leaven it or season it with love. So we can get a little bit of love thrown in as well. So our, our justice can be merciful and, and things like this. So I think Niebuhr results in this locution that killing is wrong, but in war it is necessary. I think that is a apt summary of Niebuhr's relationship to war. And I think that's, that's morally bruising. It's a dangerous ethic. Yeah. I think that's, especially as the more I read in ethics and more I read a pacifist, it's, it's, there's something almost winsome as you're reading a pacifist. You're like, yes, I want to believe that. But then there's that kind of realist perspective that has to come in and say, well, this might be the ideal perspective or the ideal in reality, we can't live that way. We can't actually pursue love without kind of counteracting with justice or counterbalancing with justice and seeking after it. One of the things I, I want to do and kind of model on this podcast is also engaging other people's perspectives on their own terms. So in terms of the pacifist perspective, I know that many listeners might say, I'm not a pacifist, 
But to understand a little bit better of that perspective, what are some of the arguments that pacifists make and how do they deal with the problem of evil? How do they deal with injustice? Is it always the, I think sometimes it's seen as they shirk the responsibility that someone else must go do that. Um, I think that there's some validity to that argument, but I also don't want to be so quick just to say, well, they don't really care about justice because I think that's overreading their situation, not really representing their argument well. So what are maybe some of the strongest arguments or some of the areas within pacifism and the arguments they make in terms of seeking justice, but also upholding love and nonviolence? Yeah, it's, it's an important question because, uh, you know, I think, I think Christians have a responsibility to be empathetic and understand as best we can, even those we disagree with. I mean, in part because we want our disagreement to be real, right? And real disagreement is difficult to achieve. I think what you touched on, the idea, the, the sort of the winsomeness of the pacifist view can be attractive. And especially, as you touched on already, also the, you know, in the aftermath of 20 years of what in one view seems a, a futile two decades of war, uh, we oust the Taliban, the Taliban are back. On the heels of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think the pacifists can feel that they've made a point. You know, there's a certain sense of futility to war in human history because it just seems to be one war after another. And at times there seems to be nothing like a military solution. I think the strongest argument that the pacifists could make is that, you know, look, human belligerence is going to be a reality. We know that human beings are never going to lay down their weapons. We know that. But how about how about Christians do? How about Christians present an alternative? And we live in such a way that uh, we reject the sword and we simply love. And we try to do the work of justice by feeding the poor, by you know healing the wounded, these sorts of things. And we don't expect that that's going to win the day, but we do expect that maybe the power of that example will in some way inspire at least a few to follow after us. Um, and as an alternative community, we can show, you know, the, 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 the beauties of peace. Uh, I think if you went in a direction like that, um, and especially in light of the fact that, you know, what has your belligerence done for you lately? Like, what has it actually accomplished? You have a few aspiring victories, World War II or something like that, but really they're, they're very few. And so our alternative is going to be compelling. I think maybe that's their best case. You know, I, I, I think it still comes up short. I think if, if the peaceable kingdom were a viable alternative to the just war community, then I suspect that God would have called us to the peaceable kingdom um, rather than mandate for anybody uh, the governmental sword. But he did mandate the sword. And then the question becomes, well, why did he mandate the sword? He must have thought it was necessary. And so if he thought the sword was necessary... And then Christians turn around and suggest, okay, it's necessary, but not for us. We're going to be the peaceful kingdom. Then we've abdicated the dirty business of doing what's necessary in the world, as God seems to think it's necessary, to the non-believers. And that seems at least to be a crime against charity. You know, this idea I have for my future novel that I'll never write about Christians being the only ones fighting our wars is in part because I think Christians have the only moral basis at the end of the day to handle the morally bruising realities of killing other human beings uh, without suffering moral injuries for doing so. And so I think it's a, 
I think at the end of the day, my biggest complaint about pacifists is I think that uh, their ethic ultimately is uncharitable because it, it, it forces people without, you know, if they had their way, people without the hope of Christ would be the only people fighting our wars. And that, that doesn't seem right. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit as we get close to our ending time here on the podcast to an area of interest for me personally in terms of war. And that's kind of the intersection with technology. So we start to see a lot. I mean, even under the Obama administration, we saw a massive rise of drone technology. Um, Then we're starting to talk about semi-autonomous drones, fully autonomous weapon systems. Uh, There's a lot of intrigue, I think, and also maybe a lot of hype uh, surrounding fully autonomous weapon systems. But we they do exist. We have the Aegis, you know, battleships. We have uh, various drone technologies. We have loitering munitions, etc. So one of the things I wanted to ask you in terms of kind of this breadth of technology used at war, not only for offensive purposes, but also in defensive purposes, is how does technology may affect kind of the moral responsibility or even the moral distance between someone when they're engaging in an act of killing, even a just killing, the distance I think is really interesting, especially from a psychological perspective, because it's not that you're doing that in front of you or even at a short distance, you can do that from across the world, controlling one of these technologies or watching the the technology make the decision and you approving it and then the kill happening. Um, I think that's an interesting area that more research needs to be done is in terms of the psychological impact of technology and war. Um, But I just wondered if you had any kind of thoughts, especially through your work, about how technology might overlap or intersect with some of these ideas, moral responsibility and moral injury. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think it, like you, I think it's a fascinating area. You know, one thing that I'll say very broadly, and then I'll go deeper into a a slightly different subject, is that at least in the foreseeable future, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you know more about this than I do, uh, but at least for the foreseeable future, a human being is always going to be somewhere in that technological loop. So, you know, you think about autonomous driving cars, self-driving cars, you know, at, at some point that car has to be programmed by a human being to make certain types of decisions under certain types of circumstances. If I'm about to have a head-on collision, do I take the head-on collision or do, do I veer to my left or my right? And in determining whether or not I veer, does it matter that on my left side is a motorcyclist um, not wearing a helmet and on my, my right side is a car full of, you know, children? However, the computer is going to make that decision, I assume a human being has to be somewhere in that programming loop to compel it to make certain types of decisions with certain kinds of algorithms. Uh, So that human being somewhere is still going to have to do the difficult business of thinking morally about who might receive what harms. Uh, And then when you get into some of the more military technologies, uh, that just comes to the fore. So you think of RPAs, uh, you know, so-called drones. And yeah, somebody can pull a trigger on an RPA, a remote piloted aircraft from across the ocean. But what we're finding is that they are still suffering rates of moral injury equal to or greater than uh, frontline infantry. And some of the reasons for that, I think, are due to the technology. You know, as you said, you know, these RPAs can loiter for a long time. And so part of why they do that is to verify that the person that they're tracking is indeed somebody they need to kill. Uh, and so you start doing lifestyle analysis and, and you 
kind of see this person live out their life. They become the sort of naked soldiers that Walzer talks about. You know, you see them go to sleep. You see them playing with their children, maybe hanging their laundry, shopping for groceries. Uh, and then at some point you snuff them. And you don't just snuff them, but because your drone can hover or loiter for so long, you can also collect intelligence by seeing who comes to mourn for them, who collects their body, who attends their funeral. So now not only have you tracked someone rather intimately, not only have you killed that person you've tracked intimately, you may attend the funeral of the person that you intimately tracked and then killed. And your video technology is so exquisite, by the way, that you got to see him bleed out and maybe spasm and all the rest. And like, who does that? Right? I mean, um, almost nobody does that. But these guys sometimes have to. And couple that with this gnawing sense, and, and I think wrongly placed, but maybe understandable, that I have been at no risk whatsoever in doing this. And unlike those who fight on the front lines, who might be killed by the enemy, I have almost zero chance of ever being killed by the people that I'm stalking. You know, only if they cross the ocean and try to hit them in Nevada or wherever they happen to be. But their physical risks are different. And they have to deal with what it means then to be called a warfighter. And, you know, I, I know people who have, who have made important hits on high value targets and they get, you know, a little challenge coin from a, a general commending them for their service. And they got this coin, they think, for sitting in a chair, you know, thousands of miles away, watching a video screen and pulling a trigger. You know, do I deserve a valor award for that? And I would make strong arguments that, in fact, they do. But one can recognize and appreciate that that feels different than the troops, you know, on the front lines. And so it's, it's, there's a lot of things that technology seems to alleviate, creates a certain distance. But in certain cases, that distance becomes incredibly and bizarrely intimate. Yeah. And that's where I just, for me at least, there's so much interest in this area. I think there's so much work to be done. And that's one of the things that we want to do on this podcast is encourage people and equip people if they want to go a little bit deeper. There might be someone who's listening who's an ethics student or a philosophy student who wants to dive into this more or a technologist who wants to think more about the ethical implications of these decisions. And so one of the things I always like to do as we end the podcast is asking for a couple quick resources. Uh, just one or two, maybe three books or articles or uh, even authors per se, kind of the corpus of their work that you think would be really helpful or that was beneficial to you in writing. And so that way you can just give these, you can kind of give us these quick hits. We'll have all of this listed in the show notes for listeners to be able to grab as well uh, after the show. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of different things uh, on moral injury, particularly. People could do worse than to read Jonathan Shea. Jonathan Shea was a veterans affairs psychologist who I think first coined the term moral injury, and he did so in a pair of books. The first is Achilles in Vietnam and then Odysseus in America. Uh, and as the name suggests, he uses uh, you know Greek epics to discuss some of what he's, he's talking about. They're, they're very good books. Uh, he has a slightly different definition of moral injury than the one I use, uh, but his his bleeds into the, into the one that I use. For more academic treatments of moral injury, uh, Brett Litz and Sharon Magan are some of the, the psychologists who get more into the weeds of what it means. Uh, but in terms of uh, just war and its intersection with uh, moral theology, uh, Nigel Biggers in defense of war is exceptional. 
There's another book that deals less with just war, but much more with just the uh, experience of war. Carl Marlantis, who is a Vietnam combat veteran and an incredible writer, uh, has a nonfiction book called What It Is Like to Go to War. And then sort of parallel with that is a fictionalized description of his own combat experiences called Matterhorn. Uh, and it's a very thick book, but a, but a very good one. Uh, I think those would be some some excellent books. And then there's some great movies. Again, Westerns. I think one of the greatest Westerns of all time is Logan, the last of the, the Wolverine franchise. I think it's a Western. I think if you want to touch on the impact of killing on the human soul, uh, Logan is a good place to go. Yeah, those are some good ones. Well, we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes for listeners to be able to grab, as well as your book. So we want to make sure people uh, check out your book, The Good Kill. Um, it's a really helpful volume. As I said, it's a very pastoral in tone as you're interacting and dealing with a lot of these uh, really difficult moral issues, um, especially as they affect other fellow image bearers. And so I think it's such an important work. I'm really glad to have you today on the podcast. Um, and Dr. Lebecki, just thank you. Thank you for joining us here on the Digital Public Square. And I really look forward to continuing work together. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm very grateful that you picked up what I hope to be a pastoral tone and not just a cold, dry academic one. So appreciate it. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Levecki and learn more about his book, as well as the recommended resources that he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the challenging issues of ethics and technology, as well as to stay up to date in the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonfacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.